morning. In this series, we're looking at incidents in the Bible where good and grief intersect. There's a place just outside of Jerusalem where these roads converge numerous times in the Bible. Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, the ridge running along the east side of Jerusalem. From that ridge, this is your view towards Jerusalem. In the other direction, it's a view into the Judean desert. Um, you see, it's, this mountain is separated from the city of Jerusalem by a ravine. And on this mountain, again, a number of times, good and grief intersect. A lot of tears have been shed on this mountain. Um, when David's son Absalom wrested control of Jerusalem from him, we read David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Um, King Solomon associated this mountain with weeping for a different reason. Um, it says that on a hill east of Jerusalem, it would have been this hill that we're standing on as we look down towards Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And it's associated with weeping because Molech was a god to worship. You indulged him with child sacrifices. So there were weeping. There was weeping on this mountain for children who were offered up to a God who was not a God at all. By records, Jesus visiting this mountain multiple times in the last week of his life, Palm Sunday, says when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke the disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Because as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, it would have been a view like this. It says he wept over it. And Jesus weeping was not just a tear trickling down his cheek. It was loud. It was wailing. And so as he came down then, as he was to walk into Jerusalem for the last time, he saw this view, saw the city before him, and absolutely broke down into sod because he could see into the future what was going to happen to the city when the Romans came and the devastation that was to take place. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And tears were shed on this mountain. 
the night before his death, and we'll consider that incident this morning when Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives on the night before he will be betrayed, the day before he will die, and he spends the night on this mountain. Um, but to continue our brief survey of been grief intersecting on this place, after the trials, crucifixion, and resurrection, Jesus once, once again, after he was raised from the dead, stood on this mountain with his disciples. It says he went out to the vicinity of Bethany, which is Bethany is located on this mountain. Uh, it says, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus was with the disciples on this mountain looking at this scene, and Jesus was taken up from them. And the angel said he's going to come back in the same way that he left. And so we have a future. Jesus will stand in this place in the future. Zechariah says it this way. On that day, when Jesus comes a second time, he came the first time as a suffering Savior. He comes a second time as a conquering king. That's what it says about his coming. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and here east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. All that happens on this mountain where good and grief intersect often in the Bible. The very location where David wept in defeat, where Jesus was betrayed and rejected, will be the place where Jesus returns in triumph over all his, men, over all his enemies, but this morning, we'll be visiting with Jesus, who is racked with grief. Uh, in your worship folder, there's a sheet. Look what it says in Luke chapter 22, beginning verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray now that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus went out as usual, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Luke gives us an interesting insight in terms of where Jesus spent the evenings during at least the last week of his life, having come into the city, to this vicinity, when he healed Lazarus and then coming in on Palm Sunday. Here's what Luke says in Luke chapter 21. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple during the last week of his life. This is where Jesus slept. And this is where Jesus got the energy he needed to move back into the city, to say the things that he needed to say. Here's where he drew his strength um, to speak to the people again during the temple. It says, then when he came here the night before, he withdrew about a stone's throw, had his disciples with him, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. 
yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. Again, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Um, the cup. There's, it's the cup that Isaiah describes. Spoken of different places in the Old Testament called the cup of destiny. And here's the way Isaiah describes it. Uh, Isaiah 51, 16 and 17, I have put the, my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk, here it is, from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. And as Jesus understands what's going to happen, he knows the cup that he will drink will cause him to stagger. But it will not be from being drunk. It will be from being in agony and in anguish. It talks about him being in anguish. That word for anguish can mean a couple of things. It denote a struggle for victory or a contest, a wrestling match. When wrestling um, was recently in Sioux Falls, and when you're grappling, and that's a word for anguish, but it, it's not necessarily physical. It can also mean a state of mind associated with fear or anguish because of some imminent impending circumstance that will be very difficult, and, and that's what Jesus is facing. Knows that he's going to drink this goblet. It is going to make him stagger, and he again, as he looks to that, is overcome with what is about to happen. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It compares profuse perspiration and the copious drops of blood splashing to the ground. You heard it said that Jesus was sweating blood. That's not necessarily what the text says. That's a condition that can happen when you break blood vessels, that it can actually sweat blood, that's probably not what this is, is that his perspiration is so profuse, the agony is so intense, that his his perspiration is like drops, and comparing it to drops of blood is, though, an image that ties in what Jesus is going to do. Uh, but nowhere else in the gospel tradition is the humanity of Jesus so evident as here. It's God and man, and his perspiration is so intense, it's like drips falling to the ground. Um, Jesus expresses a natural revulsion for what's going to happen. Father, I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to go through what I know I'm going to need to go through. And as he saying these things it's evening but he's looking at the city he can see it probably at nighttime candles if it's a moonlit night he can probably see images it's not this clear he knows the city is there and he's looking over it this is where he looked for the last week of his life gazing at the city that has been associated with God, knowing what was going to happen in the future, knowing what was going to happen within of the next day. Father, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to walk into these walls, and I'm going to drink a goblet that's going to make me stagger. But 
not my will, but thy will be done. That's what humility is. But humility is honest. Humility is honest. Jesus says, I don't want to go through with this. But what he says, but yet I am not calling the shots. You are my father and I am your son. And my purpose is to accomplish your purposes. So I am at your beck and call. I don't want to go through this. But I trust you enough to know that you will do what's best. And so I place my life in your hand. This is where Jesus got the strength to do what he did on Friday. It's because of where he was Thursday night and Wednesday night and Tuesday night and Monday night and Sunday night. This is probably not the only night he wept on this mountain. He spent the last week of his life on this mountain at night. And what was he doing? He was experiencing strength from God so that he could have strength for God. Um, experiencing strength from God what it says, it's interesting. In verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now, what do you imagine would happen when an angel from heaven appears to Jesus and strengthens him? Wouldn't you imagine that maybe he stopped crying? Sets his jaw. And then you look what it says. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I think what we find here is God gives his son the energy it takes to grieve. Did you know that grief takes energy? You know that it's hard to grieve? You understand that, don't you? It's kind of, it's easier to be mad than to be sad. You understand that? It's easier to be glad than it is to be sad. It's easier to be bad than it is to be sad. You understand that? It takes strength to grieve. To think of things that are sad. Take strength to look at a scene like this. You understand what's going to happen in 70 years, but you spend the night because you want to look at this thing because you know you need to feel the feelings that are associated with what's going to happen and so you don't run away from the grief. You stand in the place where it will come over you and you will experience it and you'll touch it and you'll touch your father's hand at the same time. Holding the reality of pain. Holding the reality of love. And not letting go either one of them. That takes strength. Grief takes energy. Because those who mourn are blessed. Because those who mourn are blessed, God the Father gives his son the strength to grieve. It's easy to try to sidestep grief, to feel that there really isn't time. There's too many things to do. Um, it would seem, though, again, Jesus would be given the strength to grieve, and this shouldn't surprise us, because, again, it says in the Bible, blessed are those who mourn, 
but they will be comforted. And what comforted means is to be encouraged. It's for God to do something personal, to give you something that you're going to need. And it says that on the far side of mourning, you will connect with God and experience from him something you'll need to keep going. Comfort doesn't mean just consolation. It really, the, the, the word really is encouraged. Encouraged. Given the courage to be able to do the thing that you need to do. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be encouraged. Infused with courage. On the far side of grief. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Kind of weird. That's what it says. Um, the word, when it says, blessed are those who mourn, there's a word for just thinking sad thoughts. This isn't it. This is getting outside what's inside. That's the word for grief. It's an expression of sadness. It's expressed externally, out loud. Now, again, we express our grief different ways. And again, in this culture, they had a very demonstrative culture. The Middle East is very demonstrative. Some of us are more comfortable with demonstrations of emotion in general. We wear our emotions on our sleeve. Some of us wear our emotions up our sleeve. <laughs> and you really wouldn't know that that was there unless you got to know us. I'm not sure if it's saying that either one of the two. What it is saying is that God gives us strength to move into grief, however you experience it. Um, interestingly, Trust in God means that we express our emotions to him, not that we don't. Again, look what it says in Psalm 62. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. This says, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Trust means not that you don't pour out your hearts to God, but that you do. That's what trust means. Some We might believe that, well, if I trusted God, I wouldn't tell him that I was nervous or anxious, that I don't want to go through this thing. I should just be able to stuff those things down. And that's not what we find Jesus doing here. Not what we find the text saying. Pour out your heart to him. Do you know what? one reason why we might not pour out a heart to God? Because we have a plan B. <laughs> plan B. So if I have a plan A, plan A is God, and if he doesn't come through, I have plan B, C, D, and E. And, and so, therefore, I don't really need to tell him what I need to tell him. Because if he doesn't come through, I've got all kinds of other stuff. I've got all kinds of money, all kinds of resources, all kinds of friends. And yet, to the degree we understand that our hope comes from him, we will be more honest with him, not less honest. We'll pour out our hearts to him more authentically, not less authentically. Um, to have us make time for grief. And it seems to me that if Jesus did, we should. I talk with people. And there is, grief feels dangerous in a way. Do you agree with me? It's sometimes when you think of what you have to do, 
the things you have to get done, it feels like if you enter grief, you'll never get out. You ever feel that? If you enter into sad feelings, you're going to get trapped there, stuck there. Not be able, it's going to so overwhelm you that it'll keep you nailed in place. Interestingly enough, what Jesus does, moves down into grief, and guess who he meets there? His father. Meets him in the grief. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. You find God there. And you know what is interesting? Apparently, that's also a place to find energy. Energy. To be able to do the things. This is what Jesus does the week before. He spends the night here looking at this scene in order to experience strength from God. By moving towards honestly expressing, not saying what he thinks his father wants to hear, but saying the things he knows his father needs to hear. What's happening in his heart? Father, I don't want to go through this, but not my will, your will be done. We tend to, we can think that, well, what I need to do, I need to kind of push this aside so I can keep going. This verse calls this kind of logic into question. Jesus carved out time to grieve. Jesus carved out time to grieve. Uh, he knew that he could not afford not to. Because there's energy there. Because blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is painful. That's why we do our best to keep it at bay. We don't like to feel grief. So we use, again, we use mad to bury sad. It's easier to get mad at somebody than it is to be sad, right? Blame somebody. Blame her. Blame him. Rather than say, you know what, God, here's the deal. I'm not experiencing what I want to experience, and I really don't know how to handle it. And I'd like to be able to be this, but I'm that, and to be... Express sad. Express sad. Don't use mad to bury sad. Don't use bad to bury sad. Some of us, what we do is, is we twist off because it's, at least it's more powerful to be bad. Right? Right? More powerful to be bad. And we use bad to bury sad. Or we use glad to bury sad. We get into mood-altering things and to take the edge off. And Would you agree with me? You know what addiction is? Avoiding this. Would you agree with me? Would that be one facet of addiction? Getting away from sad. When I, when I tie one on or when I have an affair or when I do this or that or when I take this thing, it is mood-altering. You know what addiction is? It's a relationship with a mood-altering experience or substance. Why do you take why do you have the experience? Why do you take the thing? Because it alters my mood and because I don't want to feel that. And Jesus moves towards it. Hmm. Problem with burying sad is that we forfeit strength from God. And we forfeit strength for God. As well. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Comforted, again, means more encouragement than comfort. 
It literally, what the word is, it's calling somebody alongside. If I wanted to comfort Ben, so I comfort Ben. Now, what encouragement literally would be, it's to call Ben alongside. And when Bren comes alongside, it would be to tell Ben things that he needs to hear in order to keep walking the road that God would have him to walk. It's not just, oh, there, there, don't even worry about it. What it is, is, oh, come on, man. Keep on going on the road that you're going. You're walking a good road. That's what encouragement is. It keeps somebody walking in the, in the, in the way that they will ultimately be benefited at the end. Not necessarily the easiest thing now. That's what encouragement means. It's what word comfort means here. Grief is a necessary process. Again, Jesus doesn't just come on Thursday night, I don't think. I don't think so. What Luke tells us, he was there Wednesday night, and Tuesday night, and Monday night, and Sunday night. You know, grief is a process. It's not something that's a once and done it's been described as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. You move through it. It doesn't come in that order, but those are things that are associated with grief. At some point, there will be something that will be like, well, there's no problem. That's denial. And there's anger. And then there's bargaining. I'll do this, and we bargain with God. And then there's depression when we understand that we can't get away from it. And then comes something that begins to be more about acceptance, understanding. I'm not going to be able to circumvent that and begin to start to breathe. And there's a strength that comes from that again, but it's a process. It's a process. We pay a price when we short circuit it. Again, I'm not saying like grief. I am saying, in the name of Christianity, don't walk away from it. There's some expressions of Christianity that would say, if you're grieving, that's a lack of faith. I don't think so. Don't think so. That's not what this scene tells us. This is God in human form, and he's grieving. And if he needs to, what do you think? We probably can't avoid it. Would you agree? We could. Again, we can use bad or mad or, or glad. Um, there's a, I went, remember I went to a minister's conference once and somebody, a minister, very honestly told a story about uh, feeling like if he was spiritually fit and physically fit, he was bulletproof. <laughs> so, oh, he was, but this guy took it seriously. Every morning, Quiet time. Just spending time with God. Good thing. And late in the afternoon, he'd get off church and then he'd go work out at the gym to be physically fit. Did those things, watched what he ate, and felt like, yep, bulletproof. And then his dad died. Busy church, though. Busy, busy, busy church. And didn't have the time to really grieve it. He just kind of moved into continuing to be very busy. And what he found, he started to dry up inside. He really didn't care much about anything. He didn't care about relationships. He didn't care about the church. He didn't care about what was happening. And then he ended up thinking, something's really wrong with me. And he got 
concerned enough, he went to a counselor. And the counselor talked to him and, and he tell me, tell me about kind of what's going on. And then he's, that my dad died. Oh. And? Yeah, I was kind of busy. Oh. You know what the counselor asked him to do? Go back home. I want you to go to the cemetery. I want you to sit there. I want you to think about your dad. You really think I need to do that? Yeah, I think you need to do that. And he went back there. And he sat by the cemetery. And the thoughts came. And the tears came. And he reconnected with himself. And he went back into church work and he had emotion because when you deny one emotion, you deny them all. Emotions hang together. When you push grief aside, guess what else you push aside? Joy. Everything. Everything goes. Jesus knew he was going to need emotional energy. That's why he gave himself room to grieve. I told you before, I'm going to make it quick. I remember, I, some of us, again, we wear our emotions under our sleeve, and I'm more of that type of person. Um, I was in high school. A friend of mine had died when I was away at college that I'd known and came back and visited her mother because I know her well enough that I had to express appreciation, you know, and not appreciation, consolation, so I'm really sorry. And I really cared. Nice girl. Passed away through a disease and... Um, was 350 miles away, didn't get to go there. Um, so I came back, and she sat me down and, and started to take out the yearbook, and she started to flip through the pictures. And I was saying, okay, I'll, I really should go, but okay, if you're going to keep on flipping the pictures, I guess I, I, I need to be courteous enough to at least continue to look at the pictures. So I was sitting there and just kind of looking at the pictures and, you know, wondering, I wonder how long this is going to go. And then I started to look at the pictures. And then it hit me. He's dead. And then I started to cry. You know what I realized as I came out from that place? That was not about her. That was about me. She was showing me the pictures because she was giving me an opportunity to enter into grief. I got the gift. And I'll never forget that. Somebody who cared enough to create a place where I could grieve. So I had somebody once who was in church leadership, and there was somebody who was going through very difficult things. And the individual said, and we were at a meeting, and this girl was just coming apart sobbing. And it wasn't somebody in leadership here. So, so you know. <laughs> like, what are we going to do? She's crying. In other words, we've got to fix this somewhere. I just let her cry. I'm alongside her. Why is it that we why is it that we have a hard time making time for tears? Why is that? It's a deal. Um, I think the reason why Jesus wanted the Mount of Olives, it might be for the same reason 
Again, Jesus didn't need room, but he's looking at the pictures. I don't know what it would have looked like at nighttime. But here Jesus is looking over the city. And could it be that he went to the Mount of Olives to be in touch with his grief, the same reason that this minister went to the grave site and sat there, the same reason that Mrs. This friend of mine opened the books and showed me the images. Is that why Jesus is looking? at? Is that why he's on the Mount of Olives? So he can see the object of his desire and he can enter into it? I think maybe. Maybe. This is the view. So he can grieve. You know what they call this guy, this minister he's called? And he talked about what he had been doing. He had been skimming. You understand skimming? Not going down into what you need to experience, just staying on the surface, skimming. And he understood that he needed to take time to move inside. I wonder if that might be something that some of us need to do. You've been running from grief, using mad, or using glad, or using bad, maybe stop. And with the help of somebody who will give you the room to grieve, who won't tell you, don't you know that God causes all things to work together for good? You know, that's funny, but can you see that's somebody coming up to Jesus and saying that? Look at that guy, he's crying. Don't you know that God causes all things to come together for good? Don't go to somebody like that, okay? Go to somebody who will give you room to be sad, who will allow you to grieve, who won't have nice little psalms and say nice little happy little Christian things. Find somebody who will just sit there and be with you, who will pray quietly. Just allow you to do the work that you need to do. And it's not going to be done once and done. It's going to take a number of times. I will couples grief with strength for God. What it says in James 4, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now look where it goes. This is strong talk. Strong talk. Resist the devil. Come near to God. How do you do that? What it says. Reading the words I'm reading? You want a three-part thing here? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What it seems to be suggesting here is that whatever, resisting the pull into things that will move you from God, that will, this is the way to get around it. Moving towards grief. There is a strength here. It's a strength. That's what it seems to indicate. Uh, Jesus said on reaching this place, He said to his disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. To fall is to enter into temptation, to succumb to it. How do you get around that? What is the temptation? I'm not going to read the final verses. Do you know what we tend to do? 
we tend to pursue pleasure. And it talks about the seed sown. The deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of this life. We tend to move towards pleasure. Or we move away from pain. And that's when it talks about the seed on the rocky soil. It doesn't have much of a root. And when testing and pain comes, people back away from pain. They back towards pleasure. Why does that happen? Why are our roots shallow and our lives beset with thorns? Why is that? That we have to move towards pleasure? We have to move from pain? I'd like to suggest because we haven't learned how to do this. If you can grieve, grieve is a a thing that allows you to be in a place and express some things so that, again, this is not fun, but if you can grieve, you don't have to run towards pleasure and other forms of mood-altering experiences. Hmm. Um, There's a couple of different kinds of grief. It talks in the last verse about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, they're both sorrow. He understands that God is with him and that as he enters into his grief, he enters into it with the Father. But you know that, don't you? That God is with you And that as you enter into the emotions associated with being on this planet, that you understand that your grief doesn't offend God, don't you? Do you understand that? Do you understand that he would encourage you to move into it? And that he will strengthen you to move into it? Do you understand that? Because blessed are those who mourn, They will be comforted. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm wondering. Again, I asked the question before. I'm going to sing a song for communion. And so, Are there pictures you need to look at? Are there vistas you need to look at? Is there a cemetery you need to visit? Maybe with somebody? And you say, why would I do that, Mike? It's Jesus did it. And because blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Micah's going to sing a song. I think it's a song that you wrote, Micah. Um, and for communion. And so what we're going to do then, we're going to move towards getting the elements, the bread and the juice. And as you take them, uh, again, think, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? If you're in a sad place, it's not because God has moved. How do you know that, Mike? Because if God was going to hold out from you, he never would have sent his son. But he did. And that's what this, that's what this, these tables say. So as you experience it, thank him that he's with you and all the different things of life, that he will never fail you or forsake you. He promises not to. And have that foundation be that which allows you to enter into grief along with him.
Father, thank you for your character and your will. Thank you that you have expressed yourself in physical form, becoming human and the Son of God, human and divine, the Word of God, expressing your character to us in, in things that we can see and feel and touch and taste and hear. Thank you for expressing yourself to us, for being open as we express ourselves to you. I pray that we would learn to do so authentically and openly. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.